This is a Federal News Network podcast. The State Department celebrates Foreign Affairs Day each May as part of Public Service Recognition Week. Former diplomats treat it as a kind of homecoming, but it's also a solemn occasion to honor employees who have died in service of American diplomacy. The American Foreign Service Association added 71 names of the fallen this year to a memorial plaque in the lobby of the department's headquarters. The names span generations of federal servants. For more on this ongoing project, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Association President Eric Rubin. The reason we added all these names this year with the expansion of the memorial plaques is that we had a group of volunteers who realized that there were a lot of people who had given their lives in service to their country in the foreign service and that they had not been honored. And they were not honored for two reasons. One, when the plaques were established in the early 20th century, there were people who had died before then who had not been recorded as dying in in service uh, to the United States. And there was not adequate information. There there was really no data on, on their deaths. And through very painstaking research, they were able to come up with a list which is not comprehensive. We think we will find more names uh, through further research into the history of our diplomatic service overseas of people who were not on the plaques who really deserved to be because they had died in the line of duty serving the United States overseas. And it's a very impressive piece of work and a, and a wonderful gesture. You know, as a vol- they, they did this in their own spare time because they cared and felt that everybody should be honored. The other reason the plaques have been expanded is that we have changed the criteria over the years. Originally, the wording stated that it was intended to honor people who died under heroic circumstances. Those were the words that were used. And of course, it's very hard to define what heroic circumstances are. And there were always disagreements about whether a particular death qualified or not as heroic. And so it was changed to in the line of duty uh, on official service. Uh, So we don't have to get into arguments whether it's heroic or not. The bottom line is if people were serving their country and on official duty and they died, then we think they should be honored. And we don't really want to have a debate on each person. The final reason I should mention, sadly, is that over the recent decades, the number of people who've died has grown. You can see that just by looking at the plaques uh, through terrorism, through our military engagement in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had quite a significant number of losses during the Vietnam War. You know, being in the Foreign Service has always been a perilous profession, and I think a lot of Americans have a misguided understanding of who diplomats are and what they do. And there's this image that there are people in fancy clothes who go to cocktail parties and gossip and chat and eat canapes and drink cocktails. And, you know, for some people in the Foreign Service, there may be a little of that, but actually most people are doing pretty tough duty in pretty tough places. And a lot of people have given their lives. Others have given their health and the health of their family, whether it's mental health or physical health. We've lost a significantly larger number of ambassadors serving their country overseas than we have lost generals and admirals over the years. It has been much more dangerous to be an ambassador of the United States than it has been to be a general or an admiral. And until our military engagements 20 years ago, starting 20 years ago in Iraq and Afghanistan, for the period after the Vietnam War until 9-11, it was more dangerous for everyone to be in the Foreign Service than it was to be in the U.S. military. 
Tell me a little bit more about how the State Department and AFSA have worked together to ensure that there is going to be space for the years to come to ensure that these names are listed there and then that these names are remembered. The important point to start out with is that the plaques, the memorial plaques, are paid for and maintained by AFSA, by our union and professional association. That's our contribution to honoring our fallen comrades, colleagues. We feel very strongly about it. And so this recent expansion was organized and funded by AFSA with money that was donated for that purpose. And it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it it does take some resources. For one thing, all of these marble tablets are hand engraved by master stonemasons. And there are only a few people left in the Washington area who still know how to do that. And it's very painstaking, very skilled work. Therefore, these are some of the same people who do memorial plaques at other U.S. government agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency and also our military memorials and the grave markers at Arlington Cemetery. It's not easy to get them and it's not cheap, but there's a good reason because it's very skilled work. The unfortunate part is there's not a lot more space left. If we have to expand again, it's going to be a challenge to find appropriate parts of the lobby where we could put up even more uh, plaques, tablets. But right now it fit very nicely next to our existing plaques. We have not tried to redo the existing plaques. That would be too expensive and too hard. And so things are no longer really in chronological order, but we think that's not that important. People can find names when they're looking for them. It's not, thankfully, that many names. The other thing is, well, we paid for the expansion and organized it. The State Department provided a lot of in-kind assistance, obviously not just giving us the space in the lobby, but through their facilities and maintenance people, they have enabled the work to go on. The security people enabled the skilled workers to come in and do it. So there's been a lot of in-kind contributions from the department we're very appreciative of. And then, of course, we're very grateful that Secretary of State Blinken joined us in dedicating the new expansion of the memorial plaques. Who ultimately are the folks who are submitting these names? I know that there are a fair number of foreign service officers who are history buffs and they are very well versed in the history of their posts where they're serving. But is it them who are submitting these names or is it somewhere else in the department putting in this work? For the missing names from long ago, it was our volunteers who were members of AFSA who did this on their own. But whenever we have a loss of someone on official duty overseas, it is the State Department that provides the information and the details. They do have an office of casualty assistance that supports families when there is a loss. And so we work with them. And at the same time, when we publish obituaries for members of the Foreign Service as well, we work very closely with them. So it's a group effort. Obviously, when sadly someone is lost serving overseas now, we tend to find out about it right away in this age of instant communication. So that's not a problem. The the real challenge is finding people who were missed when the plaques were originally erected. So that is, you know, a labor of love for the people who volunteer to do that. I hope we've now captured most of the missing names, but we're also pretty sure there are more out there. And certainly from you know the 19th century, when communications was not good, there, there are probably people buried in foreign graves whose names never made it back to the U.S. to be honored. So that effort will continue. Eric Rubin, president of the American Foreign Service Association, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally 
was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees 
not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.